But once we clear those bacterial viral infections, our immune system has to have a mechanism by which to turn itself off. There are occasions where the ability to turn off an immune system is the defect. And when that turning off mechanism does not occur normally, then our own immune system starts attacking itself. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try and link these discoveries to new investigational medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. So, what do you know about our immune system? Well, there's a neat and adaptive immunity and a neat kind of neutrophils and macrophages and they take care of bacteria without having to see them before. What he said, all of that stuff. <laughs> it's quite amazing that we can deplete all of our B cells and still retain quite a bit of immunity. That's a tough question. Without it, we would be dead in no time. We create our own medicines with our immune system. So yeah, we should be looking into it more and more and more and more. <laughs> oh, good answers. I think we had some immunologists that snuck into that bunch. Welcome to the final episode of season two here at The Bar. We've had a lot of discussion on this podcast series about the immune system, how immune cells communicate, traffic along connective tissue and invade tumors. In this episode, I wanna take a step back and ask a simple question. What is the immune system? What's it made of? Where does it reside? How does it work? Here to help answer all these questions and more is Andy Chan. Not only a research expert on all things immunological, but also a medical doctor specializing in rheumatological diseases. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Let's dive right in. So what is the immune system? The immune system uh, is a defense mechanism by which we and all organisms have uh, that protect ourselves from foreign invaders. It, uh, the most important aspect of the immune system is that it has to be able to distinguish self versus non-self. Can you define what you mean by self and non-self? So the immune system has to be able to recognize foreign bacteria, foreign viruses, and at the same time, not react with ourselves. And there are many diseases where the immune system goes hay haywire, in which it starts attacking our own self to cause different diseases. Before we get into some of those diseases, it might be worth just taking a moment to talk about the kind of cells that are immune systems. In previous episodes, we've talked largely about T cells, but of course, there are many more cellular components to it. So the immune system exists in many, many different species. They uh, exist in plants, in flies, in vertebrates, and the complexity of the immune system increases along the evolutionary tree. When we talk about the immune system, we really try to categorize it into two major systems, the innate immune system, as well as the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system is the ancient arm of the immune system, and it's meant to be, it's thought to be a fast responder system. 
And there are two major components. There are cells of the innate immune system, and these include cells such as macrophages, dendritic cells, uh, neutrophils, and many others. Uh, and these cells express on their cell surface or inside their cells sensors that can detect bacterial or viral RNA, uh, DNA, proteins, lipids, and when they get activated, those sensors then get activate the cells to initiate this innate immune response. And the second component, aside from cells that make up the immune system, innate immune system, are proteins. There are proteins in our blood that also can recognize foreign bacteria uh, and can actually directly kill the bacteria. So this is the complement system. This is the complement system. Now, as opposed to the innate immune system, we also have the other arm of the immune system called the adaptive immune system. This is thought to have evolved about 500 million years ago. Uh, it's not in uh, invertebrates, but first developed in the jawed fish. Uh, and this, the adaptive immune system is generated to target specific proteins of viruses, bacteria, and the like. There are the uh, adaptive immune system cells called lymphocytes. These are the T cells, B cells, and, and the like. And they, have, they develop specific reactivities against bacterial or viral proteins. James? Hey, Wellington. As an immunologist, do you study the adaptive and innate immune system, or do you focus on one? It's impossible to study one without the other because they're both so totally linked together. So the innate system is more generic. It's an immediate response to an invasion. It's kind of like the, an alarm system. An alarm will set up a response and an inflammatory reaction. This inflammatory reaction is really important for instructing and shaping the adaptive immune response. The adaptive immune response, like the T cells and B cells, come in as a second wave to fight that invading pathogen. And it takes longer because the adaptive system develops specificity. So rather than just being a general reactive response to a cut, a wound, an infection, the T cells and B cells create specific recognition of the invading pathogen. And this is why we can also develop immunological memory. Those cells then remember that particular pattern that they're recognizing and they can be called upon when you get the infection a second time. So the innate and the adaptive immune system, Andy, how do they interact with each other? Yeah, so while I've spoken that these are two different arms of the immune system, the innate and adaptive immune system actually have to communicate with each other to mount an, a normal immune response. Uh, so again, the innate immune system is the very rapid immune system. So for example, dendritic cells will see viruses. Uh, they will take up viral particles Kill, and, and, and then talk to the adaptive immune system by presenting what we call presenting these uh, viral proteins on the surface of the dendritic cells that activate specific T cells that recognize the viral proteins that are then presented on uh, a set of proteins called the major histocompatibility complex on dendritic cells. It's like the innate system is instructing the adaptive immune response to um, um, you know, indicate its size, shape, and recognition. Absolutely. So the dendritic cells actually primes the adaptive immune system initial response. 
and then the, t the innate, the, and then the adaptive immune response then goes on to expand its, itself so that it can now um, provide adequate protection against the viral or bacterial protein. But both arms of the immune system, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, are required for us to maintain normal health. What happens when the immune system goes wrong? Uh, there, the way I think about it is that there are two different ways by which the immune system can go wrong. So there are, um, there's an, on one hand, one extreme, deficiencies of the immune system. So for example, just talk about deficiencies in the innate immune system. So if you have a deficiencies, a deficiency in these receptors that I talked about earlier, these pattern receptors, then individuals with these defects actually have increased susceptibility to infections, to bacteria, viruses, uh, and other organisms. Because they can't unleash this rapid first immune response. Absolutely. So there are children that are born with you know, e either the uh, absence of these particular receptors or even in the machinery that these receptors activate. Uh, and these children uh, can actually die from very severe infections. Could you give a couple of exa genetic examples? There is a, an enzyme called IRAC4, and if kids are born without IRAC4, they suffer severe bacterial infections of the skin that causes cellulitis, of joints that cause uh, septic arthritis. They can have infections of the brain causing meningitis, bone osteomyelitis, as well as other organ abscesses. Uh, but this is very specific to that because those kids do not have susceptibilities to viral, fungal, or other parasitic problems. So it's a very, very specific defect in the immune system. A second example is that there's a type of innate cell that's called a natural killer cell. Uh, natural killer cells are very important in killing infected, virally infected, or malignant cells. There are um, patients that are born with no natural killer cells and these patients uh, suffer from very severe or disseminated viral infections, such as herpes uh, viral infections, uh, chickenpox pneumonia, and uh, about a fifth of these individuals actually will develop cancers that are related to viral infections. And then in terms of the adaptive immune response, there are um, genetic deficiencies that are associated with disease susceptibility as well. Absolutely. Such as skid syndrome. So uh, with severe combined immunodeficiency, these children have no T cells or B cells, uh, and they get uh, very severe infections during the first year of life with severe bacterial, viral, and fungal infections. And if they're left untreated, they typically will, will die in the first year of life. So a good example actually is the bubble boy. Uh, he had a defect in one of the proteins that are required for uh, T and B cell development. But then there are also acquired deficiencies. So HIV is a great example where upon infection, infected individuals get a deficiency of the T cell compartment. Conversely, you can get B cell immunodeficiencies. There is an enzyme that's called Bruton's tyrosine kinase. This enzyme is very critical for the development of B cells and there are uh, males that are born with defects or mutations in the BTK enzyme that have no B cells and hence no plasma cells and no antibody. And these individuals need to be treated either with lifelong monthly uh, gamma, uh, gamma globulin replacement or in more severe cases with bone marrow transplantation. Jane, it's always
challenging to hear about genetic conditions that affect people, particularly when the onset is at birth or in childhood. Can you talk about the difference between the immune system in a child versus in an adult? I think the genetic conditions that often result in aberrant immune responses, such as the skid defect, um, points to how critical the immune system is underlying our life and our well-being. Um, and this is both in children and adults. Unfortunately, with some of these genetic diseases, they manifest themselves in children. A child, when it's born, doesn't have a memory immune response as we do as adults because you need to generate this memory. And so children are facing diseases and infections all the time. You know, you drop your kids at, at daycare and they come home with snuffles. And all of this is helps to promote and develop a robust immune response. So when a young child can't deal with all those snuffles and viral infections, it can be debilitating and in some cases life-threatening. It might be worth at this point just taking a step back and thinking about what sets a normal immune response. And perhaps we can think about this in terms of the genetic requirements, the environmental requirements. We talked a little bit already about what happens with the immunodeficiency uh, of the immune system. We talked a little bit about that. Now, when we get infected, um, the immune system gets activated. But once we clear those bacterial or viral infections, our immune system has to have a mechanism by which to turn itself off. Otherwise, all of us become large lymph nodes, right? And so there are occasions where the ability to turn off an immune system is the defect. And when that turning off mechanism does not occur normally, uh, then our own immune system starts attacking itself. So I'll give you a very straightforward example. It's probably one of the best examples of post-infectious complications of autoimmune disease, and that's rheumatic fever. So when children or adults get infected with strep throat, we actually generate a very robust immune response, and in part, an antibody response against strep, the group A streptococcus. And once we clear that, usually everybody is fine because we turn off that particular res immune response. But in a subset of individuals, those antibodies that bind group A strep and clear group A strep go on to bind proteins that are in the heart muscle and the heart valve, and that causes rheumatic heart disease. The similar protein, other proteins are also expressed in the brain, and these anti-strep antibodies can also cross-react with proteins in the brain to cause a variety of different movement disorders. So this is an example of where you're starting to get self-recognition. You get self-recognition. So the antibody, the immune response that initially was responsible for clearing the foreign uh, pathogen, or in this case the bacteria, ultimately actually caused disease. Right. And hence, you know, you have to then treat a lot of those individuals with medications that actually then suppress the immune system. And then what about in chronic autoimmune settings? Obviously, you're an expert in rheumatological diseases, um, which cover many different types of diseases, ranging from the joints to lupus, the skin, etc. Um, what is the kind of underlying basis for the immune system driving these diseases? Well, let me talk, talk first a little bit about how protean uh, the immune system is in terms of causing disease. So there are diseases that everybody well recognizes are caused by an abnormal immune system. 
So these include diseases such as psoriasis, which affects the skin, as you noted, uh, rheumatoid arthritis with inflammation in the joints, asthma with lung inflammation, celiac disease, an immune reaction to uh, gluten uh, that involves injury of the lining of the small intestines, uh, type 1 diabetes where one gets uh, autoimmune destruction of the beta cells of the pancreas, uh, compromising the ability to make insulin. So these are well recognized. Over the past uh, decade plus, there are many other diseases that are now well appreciated to be also immune in, in nature. So these include atherosclerosis, where lipids and uh, cholesterol accumulate in the macrophages, the cells of the, of the innate immune system to form plaques and blood vessels. There's a huge growing body of literature now showing that Alzheimer's disease also has an immune component. Uh, these are these uh, activated microglial cells that reside in the brain. These are the uh, equivalent of the brain resident macrophages. And even high blood pressure. High blood pressure, uh, in high blood pressure, there's evidence that there are a variety of different immune cells, macrophages, as well as T and B lymphocytes that accumulate uh, in the kidney and the blood vessels that may uh, regulate the tone of the, of the blood vessels. And there are likely many, many more diseases uh, that we will come to appreciate in the near future that are actually manifestations of an abnormal immune system. Um, now, unlike the severe immunodeficiencies where we talked about, you know, these are primarily genetic deficiencies that usually present in the first year, typically present in the first year of life, these autoimmune diseases, most of them that we've talked about, really take um, years to develop, okay? and in many cases, decades. For example, in rheumatoid arthritis, the typical uh, age of onset is in the fourth to the sixth decade of life. Uh, and hence, in these diseases, there are many factors that contribute to, to actually whether somebody actually develops uh, clinical manifestations. And as you suggested, you know, the way I think about it, there are at least three major components. The first is a genetic component. Uh, there are differences in our genetic makeup uh, in our DNA, and those will affect how powerful our immune system uh, is. The second are environmental factors, and we can talk a little bit more about this. And the third one, of course, are hormonal influences. Jane, are these factors that you guys are talking about some kind of baseline way of thinking about the immune system? We've been talking a lot about, for example, innate and adaptive immune responses as these kind of fixed boxes that interrelate with each other. And this is very true, but they're also influenced by many other things than just each other. Within a given person, how old they are, what kind of genetics they have, what kind of bacteria is in their gut, previous exposure to infections, even exposure to sunlight or other medicines that the person may be taking can all influence the level at which the immune system gets triggered. And we don't know all the rules for that, but this is what we're trying to understand. So these are like multiple factors that feed into kind of an immunological set point. Yes, let's talk about a disease that's called systemic lupus erythematosus. It's a classic autoimmune disease. It's, we call it lupus for short. So lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease in which a patient's immune system begins to attack their own healthy tissue. So they can attack the skin to cause rash, joints to cause arthritis, cause uh, kidney failure, 
They can, they can attack the brain to cause seizures, mood disturbances, and strokes. Lung to cause inflammation as well as hemorrhage. And blood vessel inflammation that affect many, many different organs. Of importance is that lupus patients all present differently. All right, so some individuals who just have skin, skin and joint involvement, whereas other individuals might have brain or other uh, major organs involvement. The cause of lupus is unknown, uh, but it is likely there are many different causes. So I want to use lupus to highlight how the three different buckets I described, genetics, environment, hormonal influences, influ uh, affects the development of lupus. So let's begin with genetics. In the general population, uh, the risk for lupus is 0.1%, so one in every 1,000 uh, in individuals. First-degree relatives have a 20-fold greater risk. So implicating genetics. Implicating genetics. But the concordance between identical twins is only about 30 to 50%. So it can't just be genetics. So it cannot be just genetics. And in fact, um, twins might well have the, almost the identical immunological abnormalities. So they might have these autoantibodies, but one twin will actually get clinical disease while the other one does not. So it's like there's a, thresh, a threshold or a, or a point that is reached by one and not the other. That's right. So the second component that might well, that's known to contribute to the development of lupus is actually hormonal. All right. So here, 90% um, of patients with lupus are women. Okay. It's actually true many of patients with autoimmune diseases in general are female. Uh, well, m many are, uh, but there are also uh, autoimmune diseases where there's a, a predominance of males. So for example, there is a, a disease called ankylosing spondylitis where there's arthritis involving the spine as well as some of the uh, peripheral joints. And in that disease, 90% are actually men. So um, how hormonally driven are these? So let's go back to the um, lupus example. So as I said earlier, 90% are women. If you take childbearing years, um, the, odd, the ratio of female to male is about 10 to 15 to 1. But in patients with lupus in the pre-puberty uh, uh, um, age, it's only 3 to 1, female to male. And postmenopause is about 8 to 1. So women of childbearing years have a far greater increase uh, risk uh, in distribution uh, uh, for, for lupus. So there's a clear evidence, both in humans as well as in mouse models uh, of lupus, that the uh, estrogen to androgen balance is actually very important in uh, dictating whether uh, a patient will actually get lupus. Uh, in addition, there's some evidence to even suggest that the gender differences can affect the organs that are actually uh, uh, presented. So there's clearly a, a hormonal component in lupus as well as many other uh, autoimmune disorders. And, and do we have an understanding of, of why this happens? Is this because of hormonal receptor expression? Is this because of different components of the immune system that are being activated? I think uh, at this juncture, the data is not uh, absolutely clear that there's only one cause. 
it's known that and the estrogen androgen balance is extremely important uh, and like and it is well known that the estrogen androgen balance has different effects on, on uh, the immune system itself so let me go to the third component which are the environmental components all right so we know uh, that there are drugs that actually can cause lupus-like illness there's a a medicine which has been used to treat hypertension decades ago, and also another drug that's used to treat uh, cardiac arrhythmias, and it is, has been described that there are small subsets of individuals that, are, that do not have lupus, but when they take these medications will get clinical syndromes that mimic lupus. They will get all the autoantibodies as well as many of the clinical manifestations, and when these medications are stopped over time, those symptoms will resolve. But it is also known that there are other th environmental fa factors that actually can trigger lupus, not cause lupus, but can trigger lupus. So for example, uh, in patients that have lupus, we know that UV light can trigger lupus flares. We know that infections, such as uh, Epstein-Barr viral infections, can trigger lupus. We know that exposure to silica dust can trigger lupus in patients that have uh, this disease. And of course, a major question in the field then is how do these environmental factors actually trigger or cause lupus? And there are, again, there are many, many different factors, but one of the very interesting areas and area of uh, intense investigation is that while we know that the coding sequence of DNA can dictate the risk for lupus, there are also epigenetic changes that are induced by many environmental factors that change DNA methylation or change uh, how histone proteins bind DNA. And these are heritable changes that can change the way that uh, genes are actually turned off or turned on. So it's like putting bookmarks or blocks on DNA that changes how it's read out. So it might turn a gene on or off, or it might impair or change the amount that's being made, for example. Absolutely. And this, so this is an area that's been under very intense investigation over the past decade or so. And what's intriguing about that is how these epigenetic modifications are not just imprinted kind of environmentally in an individual, but these could actually be Inherited, inherited as well. Yes, that's so the epigenetic changes very interestingly just like the DNA coding changes are also inherited So they, they, they carry along through different generations so um, a lot more work need, is ongoing and needs to be done to further examine the underlying mechanisms by which these autoimmune diseases uh, are manifested um, both in the DNA side uh, epigenetic side, uh, environmental causes, hormonal changes, uh, and these will apply to all the various diseases we spoke about uh, that may be mediated by the immune system. Jane, what are epigenetics and what are these epigenetic influences that you guys are talking about? Epigenetics is quite complicated, but a simple definition is it's a study of the biological mechanisms that turn genes on and off. So genetics, you think about the genes that encode DNA, and we know that this can differ between cells and individuals. That's why we look different from each other, and this is heritable. Um, epigenetic changes are also heritable, but they're not modifications or alterations in the gene itself. It's modification of how the gene is regulated. 
And genes are often regulated or are regulated by different proteins that land on them that provide different scaffold function. It either keeps the DNA locked up so it can't be accessed and transcribed, or it allows it to be open and accessible. And it turns out the regulation of protein and DNA interaction is something that's also inheritable. I mean, I think everything you've discussed really points to the complexity of diseases and the immune component underlying the pathogenesis of these diseases. Do you think that lupus, for example, just focusing on lupus, we've talked about this, is one disease, or whether the fact that you've got different manifestations in different organs really starts to represent um, subtypes of disease, and is that where we need to push towards understanding as immunologists? Yeah, so invariably, you know, in lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, we know that these are just clinical syndromes that we define as a disease, but we know that there are many different causes. So, for example, in, now let's take asthma, we know that there is abnormality in constriction of the uh, airway that results in a clinical symptom of shortness of breath, but there is evidence that there are different causes of asthma. Uh, for example, we know that a subset of individuals are, ha, are really driven by IgE, which is an antibody that, uh, is a me that mediates allergic responses. We know there is also a subset that's driven by a T cell subset called TH2-mediated asthma. And conversely, we know if there are individuals with almost the identical clinical symptomatology and severity that do not have high IgE levels and are not caused by Th2 cells. Whoa, Jane. Do you mean that two people could have the same disease, clinically speaking, and yet somehow be categorized or defined as having two distinct diseases? Is this like how you describe pathways feeding tumors instead of location in cancers? Often we bucket diseases into a name because they have similar clinical manifestations. Um, this is true of arthritis and asthma. It's true of also cancers. We don't know with certain tumors where they're coming from and then what are the triggers that are setting up an immune response. And it may be in some tumors that this will be the same, but it may be in others that this is very, very different. You can take a tumor like non-small cell lung carcinoma, and if you look across tumors in different patients, you can find some that don't have any immune cells in them, some that have immune system, system trapped on the outside, and some of them have loads of Im immune cells inside them. And we don't know if that's the tumor's way of reacting to the immune system, or if there's something inherently different about the immune system that's making the immune system stop and start in different places. You know, one thing that I've really learned in studying these different diseases is it's very important not to get trapped by the assumption around the disease and always try and understand the underlying biology because you can uncover new pathways and perhaps a better understanding of a disease subtype. And if we can break disease down into these subtypes, surely this allows one to probe for um, ways in which one could clinically go after some of these diseases. Absolutely. So in each one of these clinical syndromes that are ca caused by multiple different um, parts of the immune system, our hope is that we can identify the various subsets. Let me use infectious diseases as, as an example. A patient can have pneumonia, but 
if we only are stuck on the clinical diagnosis of pneumonia, we really don't know whether the cause is due to bacterial pneumonia, viral pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, which is not infectious. So to blindly treat pneumonia with an antibiotic is not going to be helpful to the patient. So we really need to understand the actual causation of each one of these patient subsets, uh, whether it be lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, um, asthma, or other diseases. And that is probably why, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, only about uh, 30 to 40% of individuals actually respond well to any of the, any of the many approved therapies. And, it, and that likely is because uh, there are at least three or more different major causes uh, of, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So that's the challenge for us, for the drug discovering and drug development field which is how do we subset these clinical syndromes into patient subsets that are driven by a uh, dominant major mechanism that we can then match a targeted therapy for that individual. So um, you began your training as a doctor and it was after you had completed your medical degree that you moved into more basic research. Could you describe a little bit what your interest in moving into laboratory science was and then actually what kept you seeing patients as well? So I think um, my fascination with science and medicine uh, was really to understand uh, the underlying mechanisms that initiated and continued to drive disease. I happened to choose the immune system because it, was, it seemed very fascinating at the time. And fortunately for me, um, the applications and the importance of the immune system is now apparent in many different areas of medicine. Not just the traditional rheumatologic areas, which is my area of clinical specialty, but in pulmonology with both asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, as I mentioned earlier, in neurology with Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis, uh, as well as even in the area of oncology, where the area of cancer immunology has had a huge impact in the uh, care of patients just over the past uh, half a decade. You, um, I think of science or laboratory science as very empirical, I think most of us do. Um, but you just said something very interesting in terms of medicine is that there's um, you know, an absolute way of treatment, but there's also an art of medicine as well. How do you think, or do you ask different questions, or do you have a different scientific approach when you're thinking about laboratory research versus medical patient research? The general approach, I think, is, is the same. Um, you try to identify the major problem, and then you assess the possible causes, whether it's a scientific question or whether it's a clinical question. Uh, so just to give you an example, if you're in the emergency room and you're an emergency room doctor, patient comes in with chest pain, you immediately assess what the potential causes of chest pain could be, uh, and then you inquire to see whether the patient has any laboratory, clinical, or physical evidence of, that would support any of your hypotheses. 
uh, now. At the same time, in, in the laboratory, you identify a scientific problem. You have a scientific phenomenon, and you assess to see what the potential explanations are. Now, there's a huge difference between the two, because in the laboratory, you can at least have the opportunity to go back and, and, and rethink your experiment. Do it again and again uh, and again. And so in the clinic, the, the scientific thinking is a little bit different, because even though there is a potential cause that's very unlikely, you still have to assess that very unlikely cause first, if that cause is gonna, has the potential to have severe consequences on the patient uh, in, the, you know, in the near term. So I think the time dimension, that's a little bit different between a scientific problem and clinical problem. But in both cases, what drove me into medicine as well as science was my interest to problem solve. They're different problems, but you use the same analytical techniques in attacking both sets of problems. So taking that and thinking forward into the future, um, we've talked about the complexity of immune disease. Um, there's a lot that we don't know. There's components of genetics. There's the set point of the immune system. There's protein hormonal regulators. There's environmental factors. Um, where do you see the field going in terms of trying to tease this apart and to maybe get to the point where a patient with a complex immune disease can present in an office and there is a quick test to put them into a certain kind of subtype. Yeah, so I think actually I'll even take a further step back. I think, you know, the era of whole genome sequencing exists today. Uh, you know, folks are getting their DNA analyzed uh, day in and day out. We don't necessarily know quite today what to do with all the information, but I foresee that in the near future that that will become reality. That when you sequence your own genome, uh, you will know what your potential risks are going into the future. That's the genetic component. Uh, then complex to whatever the environmental exposures that you have, uh, whether it be that you live in an area with very intense UVA and UVB sunlight, whether you're a smoker, uh, other environmental aspects that you should, one should be able to, dis, to determine what the actual risks might be uh, in terms of developing age-related macular degeneration, of developing Alzheimer's disease, and many others. Um, now, so that's sort of the preventive health kind of envisioning of where the future of medicine lies. Once patients get disease, because of the already existing and undoubtedly further uh, sophisticated tools that will develop, we should be able to far, have a far better idea of the potential causes of a disease from a molecular and cellular aspect in a given individual. And once we understand better what the major drivers of that disease is, we should be able to match that to a targeted therapeutic. I'd like to go back and ask another question. Why can't we treat a chronic disease easily with something that we would treat a, an acute inflammation with? Why does the chronicity continue? Well, that's a great question. You know, so I don't think we really have a good idea of why, uh, despite effective therapies, a disease continues. If we have a better idea of how, what are the initiators of disease or the 
continue instigators of disease or to propagate the disease, that might allow us to actually um, have more truly disease-modifying therapy. If you can understand the initiators of the disease and have a therapy that can abrogate that particular event, you might actually have a far better long-term outcome without any, without any immunosuppressive therapy. So there are many things that, you know, there are many ideas that the field has of how to sort of restore that sort of homeostasis in the immune system uh, to back to the, no the normal checkpoint. Um, and these are areas of, of intense investigation in diseases such as type 1 diabetes, uh, in celiac disease, in um, multiple sclerosis. So um, a lot of these treatments that you've been discussing and are being used in the field are uh, monotherapy or they're, they're, they're put in combination with very limited other um, therapeutics, which is kind of quite different when you look at oncology, for example, where you get a lot of combination therapies targeting multiple nodes. Um, why this difference and is that something that will change in the future? Yeah, at, at present, um, the combination therapy has been challenging, for example, so that if you inactivate one part of the immune system, you're marginally compromised. But when you begin disarming multiple arms of either the adaptive or the uh, innate immune systems, uh, you will now substantially increase uh, susceptibility to infection. So in part, is we have to ensure that we have to find the right combination of targeted therapies which will be safe and will provide additional therapeutic benefits. Of course that's really important to remember um, when treating chronic diseases. It's one thing to increase your toxicities if you can manage them for a very short time period but obviously this is not sustainable when you're looking at trying to keep people on therapies for a long time that have these chronic diseases. That's absolutely correct. Unless we come up with a cure unless you can get back to resetting the <laughs> immune system. So a bit of a Star Trek question. 10, 20 years out from now, where do you think we'll be? And, and where do you think young budding scientists out there should look to or push to in their own research? Well, I think all of them should be immunologists. <laughs> well, I agree with that. Um, but I think, you know, the field is um, evolving very, very rapidly. Okay, and just thinking about what's happened in medicine in the last 10 to 15 years, one would not have predicted the ability for us to be able to do whole genome sequencing in 72 hours or less at this uh, very reasonable cost. So I think it's hard to speculate what technology might exist in a matter of even 10 plus years. Um, but I, I really do believe that, you know, the things that we talked about, that the aspects of uh, sequencing one's own genome, looking at certain uh, um, types of biomarkers, depending what, who, what one's own genetic risks are, um, will come to fruition. And the sort of the holy grail would be to be able to better predict when one is able to get disease and be able to intervene at a appropriate time to be able to um, prevent the actual development of disease. Well, Andy, it's been a delight to talk with you today. I think you've really highlighted that immunology really underpins so many different diseases, but yet there's so much more to uncover about 
how the immune system is being activated and then instructing the outcome of these diseases. Thank you. It's been terrific. Thank you. As an immunologist, I have to say, that was a perfect way for us to wrap up our second season of Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. This has been such an enjoyable and exciting season. We've covered proteins, chemistry, pharmacogenomics, and neuroscience, and immunology. It's been a real pleasure for me getting to know my colleagues and diving deeper into the exciting work that they are doing with their teams. And it's been great working with my producer, Wellington. Thanks, Wellington. My pleasure. For our listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed listening to us over the past few months. We've certainly had a great time putting these shows together. We've had a huge groundswell of support locally and worldwide, so thank you. I hope you'll keep spreading the word and telling your fellow science fans about us. And as always, always remember to like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you have not already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. And now, for me, it's back to the lab.